The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Globally, on average, one man is dying every minute of every day from suicide. What we need to remember when we often hear or read this statistic is that every number is representative of someone's dad, son, grandson, uncle, best mate, husband, soulmate, brother that has lost their life to suicide. We all need to take more time in our life to listen and seek help from people we trust and when needed, seek support from highly experienced and registered psychologists to help us take better care and prioritise our mental health. Today on MediTalk, we speak with Dylan Kirkpatrick, Clinical Psychology Registrar at Clear Health Psychology, to shine a light on men's mental health in support of a wonderful health initiative, Movember. When you look at the stats with men suffering depression and anxiety, they're extremely high. And in fact, in Australia, currently three out of four suicides every day are men. Why do you think the rates are so high? Yeah, it's a really important question to talk about. I think communication plays quite a big role in it. If we think about some of the social messages that that men get, um, it's getting better, but still today I think there's this attitude that to show emotion in some way is to show weakness. And so we get those messages through the kind of social portrayals of, of men within media, within music, high profile men um, in some ways kind of exude that as well as men at communicating about our feelings and what's kind of going on for us. And that can really result in a sense of isolation and a sense that, you know, to have emotions is in some way wrong. And then if we do have emotions, we've got to kind of hide those and suppress those and not let anybody know. We've got to put this kind of front forward to say that, no, we'll be we'll be okay, everything's all right, the kind of she'll be right, mate. And that's that real Australian sort of in in our culture, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, this kind of culture of getting on and just, and just doing it. And if we think about it, even as young kind of boys, I think parents typically talk to their female children or their daughters more often about emotions and about how they're feeling, and we might not be having those same sorts of communications with our sons. So even from a very early age, they're kind of missing out a little bit on an opportunity to explore emotions and what they're about and and how they link to our everyday experience, which can sometimes result in kind of a reduced emotional awareness as well as men. So it might be harder for us as men to understand when we are feeling stressed or anxious or depressed, you know, what is this? What am I feeling? Oh, it's a bit strange. I better, I can't show any weakness anyway, so I better just kind of bottle it up a little bit and then... I think it's that real sense of isolation and maybe not knowing what to do or where to go can drive a sense of hopelessness and helplessness, which can sometimes lead to suicide attempts. And is there an association between unmanaged mental illness and suicide? 
Yeah, there, there, there's been evidence that suggests that, certainly. There's also some evidence that suggests that there's other factors involved in it as well. But certainly there's a link between um, mental illness and um, suicide, particularly depression and anxiety. But there's also other factors that are associated with that. Unemployment's been kind of linked and those kind of pressures around unemployment, um, isolation and separation from families. So if we think about fly-in, fly-out workers being removed from their families for extended periods of time, that's really difficult for them to manage that, then they're feeling really isolated. Um, intimate partner problems seems to be something that's coming out too is quite important with men. So um, having those kind of um, challenges in their intimate relationships, so difficulties in expressing, communicating with, with their partners, that's can be a real challenge as well. Um, and as we said, yeah, mental illness, of course, depression and anxiety plays a role also. And it's hard too because if you haven't seen good communication uh, or communication being role modelled, and we're certainly not being taught it sometimes at school, I, I, th I look back at my own schooling and I think, I can't remember ever really having uh, any classes on communication or active listening or... Yeah. That's a really important point. We're not really actively taught about things like emotion um, typically and how to communicate and what to do when we're experiencing emotions and how we can cope with that. Um, and then if we kind of think about then we're not getting that perhaps modelled in the media and then we're not as men and we're also not kind of getting those opportunities with um, caregivers to talk about those sorts of things. Um, it just kind of all goes together to producing this yeah, environment where we don't necessarily know what's going on emotionally and we don't know how to express it and we don't feel like we're able to express it so we bottle it up and that can create a real sense of isolation. Can we have sort of a genetic predisposition to mental health conditions? Currently we kind of look at it as a kind of 50-50 split if you like as one way of putting it so there's a genetic and a biological component so we all have various vulnerabilities to things um, like depression and anxiety and that can be um, kind of explored through family history do we have family members that have suffered um, anxiety or depression uh, that can signal a, a potential vulnerability and maybe increase our risk and that's one side of it and then the other side of it is our life experiences what are the things that we're exposed to throughout our childhood what are the parenting styles what are some of our experiences within school and together they all kind of combine um, and and for some people that re results in an expression of um, depression or anxiety um, so it's a combination of effect really between both of those things. And then what are some signs and symptoms of depression, anxiety? So if we're aware of them, we can look out for them in ourselves as well as look out for them in others. Yeah. So with men, we find irritability and anger seems to present. So sadness, particularly depression and sadness can kind of present as an anger and an irritability. So frustration. And you probably wouldn't even think of that. Because you think depression, oh, they'll be sad, melancholic. Yeah. So, and typically, so it's, uh, overall, there's that kind of um, low mood and sadness, and we see that across presentations um, with, with both genders. But also with men, it seems that irritability and anger can kind of present as well. So that's one kind of maybe difference in a sense. Um, withdrawal as well, if we, we feel like we want to withdraw from our partners, from our families, from our social connections, this kind of withdrawal process that happens, feeling more tired, more lethargic, um, unmotivated, these kind of senses that we don't really want to do things, loss of interest in stuff that we might previously have enjoyed. Um, sleep disturbances as well, so we might have 
difficulty getting to sleep, increase in risky behaviours, so perhaps um, increased use of drugs and alcohol. These are all signs or, or, or ways in which kind of depression and anxiety can present across the board, but particularly, as I said, anger and irritability with men and perhaps even a suggestion that risky behaviour and increase in risky behaviour is um, quite prevalent with men as well. And would it be something that would be a gradual process? So, you know, I think, you know, as a loved one and you might be thinking, oh, gosh, you know, it's been quite angry or irritable. Mm. But it's not just about being angry and irritable over a week. It's are we looking at these sort of um, behaviours that have gone on for two, three months where you think, yeah, something might not be right here? Yeah, that's a really good question. So with depression, typically we look at over the two-week period. So if, we, if we've been feeling this way, we've noticed that a, a, that a, a loved one or somebody we know has been kind of behaving or, or seems to be feeling this way for two weeks or more, so on most days, most of the time, that's a real indication that it's a little bit more than just the normal kind of dips and changes in mood. Because um, that's a really important point. We all get irritable and angry sometimes. So the fact of getting irritable or angry in itself isn't isn't necessarily an issue. But if that's over a prolonged period of time of, of a number of weeks or longer, then that might indicate that there's something else there worth exploring. And then how would a psychologist diagnose depression or anxiety? So clinical interview is one of the, the main tools that we use. So we, we sit down with you, we talk about what's kind of going on in the moment currently, what are some of the issues that you're facing. We might also talk a little bit about kind of background history, what was your childhood like, what, what was it like when you were younger, growing up, family life. And sometimes we might use formalised questionnaires as well. So, you know, structured questions that we might ask of 10 to 20 questions about kind of how we've been feeling, um, and they're the real main ways, I guess, in which we kind of diagnose depression. So really through that clinical um, interview and discussing what's kind of going on. Um, and then we're looking at how they kind of match up with what we know about diagnostic criteria for different disorders like depression and anxiety and if they're meeting those kind of criteria. And is there a scale so you can be severely depressed or you might be maybe mildly depressed? Is there sort of a, a scale to depression and anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. There is a scale. So depression, you know, periods of sadness and periods of anxiety are a normal part of everyday life. So the experience of them in of itself is, is not an issue. And so there is this kind of um, scale or continuum which we sit on. Um, and so we can have, you know, short periods of just feeling a little bit sad, longer periods of feeling quite down, and then periods where we might feel really down and really low or really, really anxious. So it certainly can kind of vary between mild, moderate and severe experiences of depression and anxiety. Do you think people or men might feel worried about being categorised as depressed and anxiety? And that might be a you know, sort of limiting or restricting them from feeling comfortable seeing someone, being, you know, the fact that they might be diagnosed with a mental health condition? Yeah, absolutely. I think that can be a challenge for anybody who's experiencing um, um, some mental health challenges, this concern about being diagnosed as having a mental disorder. So this that element of stigma around that's getting much better. We're, we're, as a society, we're getting much better at talking about mental illness and mental health and, and what good mental health looks like and what, you know, challenging mental health looks like. So I think it's reducing, but we've got some way to go. But definitely I think some of that internalised stigma, you know, what does it mean about myself and also that kind of external social stigma about being diagnosed with um, 
depression or anxiety, I think can be a barrier at times, yeah. And then what are the treatment options? You know, so some people might say, oh, I don't really, you know, um, want to go on medications. I don't want to turn into someone I'm not, you know. Yeah. There might be that worry. Are there other forms of effective treatment just in case medication's not an option for someone? Yeah, absolutely. So medication's one route to go down and that's through discussion with your GP um, about what's kind of going on for you and, and, and they have the expertise in terms of the medication. Medication can be useful sometimes in terms of maybe helping stabilise mood to a degree where you can engage in other interventions. So it can be important. But in terms of other interventions, um, psychotherapies, um, there's a lot of really good evidence about a psychotherapy approach. So that's seeing somebody like a clinical psychologist or a clinical psychologist registrar or a general psychologist or a counsellor and kind of really doing what you might kind of consider as talking therapies where you go in and you kind of talk and explore about um, what's going on for you. And there's a, there's a number of different approaches for psychotherapy. There's the one with the most um, evidence is probably cognitive behavioural therapy. And um, just quickly, that's about looking at the thinking. So what's the thinking that's going on for you? What are some of the behaviours that you're engaging in and how they might be combining to keep you caught in a cycle of low mood or anxiety? And, and then we can look at what we can do about those things to try and improve that. And that's a specialised um, training, CBT, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's correct. So psychologists typically, typically do anywhere between four and six years of university study and then um, periods of um, professional development and um, professional supervision to get trained in that kind of ability to be able to apply um, their knowledge to the presenting problems and then what's an appropriate kind of psychotherapeutic approach to help in whatever situation somebody might find themselves in. And I suppose just to sort of um, how quickly could someone respond to therapy? So is it something that can take a few weeks and you start feeling a bit better? It really depends on, on the person and depends on what's, what's going on. There's certainly um, perhaps in some situations that you might be going through, a, a shorter kind of burst of psychotherapy might be really effective and you might find that really useful. Um, but for some or other situations and issues, it might be a more um, prolonged period of a, of a number of sessions. Uh, it's been really good in Australia. We've typically had 10 Medicare rebated sessions for um, mental health intervention, and that's now been increased to 20 per, per year. Um, so that kind of gives you, it gives you an idea of, of the kind of scope. It can be quite short sometimes, as in a number of sessions to perhaps, you know, up to 20 sessions over a period of time, just depending on what's going on for the individual. And that would have been based on evidence, the fact that it can take up to 20 sessions. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So when we look at the evidence about things like cognitive behavioural therapy, you know, you could say typically around 10 sessions is... is um, what you could expect to kind of go through and then do a review after that and, and think about then should we do some more? Is it Do we want to have a kind of go at seeing how things are going now? So, yeah, it, it's variable but, you know, 10 sessions I guess. And that's all discussed, you know, in the, that forming of a relationship between the psychologist and, and the person having the treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So rapport building and, and building that kind of trust and that collaborative relationship between therapists and, and client is, is really important and that's about, yeah, exploring what's going on together and being really open about 
what some of the issues might be and what some of the approaches to assisting in that might be and how long that might take. So how can we, do you think, move past some of the barriers? So particularly we're talking about, you know, men's mental health because it's Movember, to try and break through these barriers and, and get them into seeing some, getting some help? Mm. I think communication is really, really key. Um, so thinking about if, if, we, if we see a mate or, 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 or a male that we care about or anybody for that matter um, that who we feel like might be struggling, just ask that question, you know, how are things going? And then creating a, a, a space for them to respond, recognising that that might be difficult for them to talk about. So perhaps we need to kind of check in with them more than once. So, you know, you might see them, how, how are they going? They might say that they're going okay. You have a feeling that perhaps there's still something going on. Check in again a couple of days later, you know, oh, how are things going? Just wanted to kind of check in. So changing that kind of view, I guess, you know, making it more um, acceptable in a way to be able to ask about how people are feeling and then also talk yourself about how you're feeling about things on an individual basis. What can we do? Talk or talk to loved ones, talk to your family, talk to your friends. If you're not going that well, Try and open up about that. If somebody asks you, let them know. Yeah, look, I'm not really sure. I don't feel like I'm going that well. And I suppose they can start with a discussion with their GP and and now I suppose it's through their GP that they, if they may qualify for a mental health plan, yeah. you know, that can be a good start, you know. Absolutely. If they're in their next GP visit, if they're feeling a bit down, even though they might think, well, I only go to my GP for you know, physical symptoms and signs, yeah. but I think it's really changing that mindset of seeing our mental health as, as important, if not more important than our physical health or both, or yeah. in the same light at least. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. If you, if, if, if you don't feel like you can talk to your friends or your, or your partner, then talk to your GP. If you feel like, hey, I'm struggling a little bit, absolutely go and have a chat to your GP. They have um, a lot of experience and understanding and being able to talk about um, mental health and, and what that looks like and then they can give guidance on mental health care plans to get access to rebated um, rebated sessions. So absolutely, GP is a good place to start as well. And is there sort of an association to, you know, us self-soothing when we are feeling down or anxious with things like, you know, gambling a bit more, alcohol, drugs? Is there, you know, people find that that becomes their way of treatment Self-treatment versus going and seeking help? Yeah, absolutely. I think self-soothing self can play a big role in that and that links back a little bit to that kind of if you see an increase in risky behaviour and by risky behaviour you might see engaging in gambling, drug use, uh, you know, increase in alcohol use. But I think that can really be um, something that, 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 that happens. We kind of don't really necessarily know what's going on. We just know we're not feeling that great about it. We don't have good emotional awareness. We don't have a lot of confidence in where we can go to seek external support. So we might fall back on relying on things like alcohol, gambling, drug use to kind of try and um, soothe ourselves. Yeah. If you think about that period, it's when we're exper experimenting more, we are kind of getting more and more interested in what our peers think, what our peers are doing. It's um, a kind of a period where we're experimenting a little bit more. So it can, it can definitely be an issue in terms of kind of young adolescents or you know, late adolescence as well, this kind of increase in risky behaviours. So if they are listening to this episode or we've got a loved one that's listening to this episode, what are some sort of practical, they could obviously reach out to their GP, which we've chatted about. I think it's really important to let people know too that 
they don't actually need a referral to see a psychologist. They can just come as a private client, can't yeah, they? Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. So you can go through the GP path, so, um, or you can go directly to a psychiat- psychologist or a psychiatrist, or a psychologist, sorry. But definitely what can people do, sort of if they have concerned about loved ones, just ask them, just check in with them. You know, if they're still concerned, encourage them to, to be able to talk about what's going on for them, encourage them to seek support through their GP or, or through another avenue. And then how would you go about finding the right psychologist? And I know it sounds like a, a simple question, but, you know, because it is so personal, isn't it? Yeah. What are some sort of tips? Because you might not have heard of someone word of mouth and, of course, um, it, your GP might refer you to someone. Yeah. But if you're sort of not either of those, how would how, – because, I mean, there is stats to suggest it's really – the relationship bond or the that you form with your with your psychologist it can impact the effectiveness of treatment can it not yeah relationship is really important in the therapeutic process absolutely so you're right gps can often um, have psychologists that they're aware of that they might recommend Um, many psychological practices now have websites with short bios about the psychologists that work there Um, their approach kind of what their training is um, and the sorts of things that they might work with. Um, but it's really about just exploring, you know, having a look, reading the bios of the psychologist, having a think about whether that matches how you kind of feel like you view things, whether it sounds interesting, whether it sounds like something that you um, could get involved in and participate in. And then going along and seeing the psychologist, you can ask questions like, what's their approach? What kind of therapeutic um, strategies do they do they use? And just exploring that with them collaboratively, looking for a clinician or a psychologist that is really collaborative in their approach and and really interested in finding out what fits for you and fits for your individual circumstances. Yeah. So again about communication really. Yeah. Communicating about that good old communication. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> no. And then what about sort of strategies they could listen to now? Because I've heard exercise can really af- affect our serotonin levels. You know, what are some practical tips that we could that someone could put into practice to help their mood. Yeah, absolutely. Exercise is, is one of those things. And that links more broadly to just kind of being, um, getting engaged and involved in those things that you enjoy doing. So, um, getting involved and engaged in those behaviors. So we can see that withdrawal from things that we used to find interest in. So we might stop doing sport, stop catching up with people. If you're noticing that that's happening, a practical strategy is to kind of just start to re-engage in those activities, get back out there, get doing your activity, go seeing the people that you want to talk to. So doing those really practical strategies of kind of trying to stay engaged and connected with others, even when that might be difficult. And then can alcohol impact our mood? So if if you are sort of drinking, I mean, it's not great because we're coming up to now the festive <laughs> season yeah. um, and Australian culture is unfortunately very, uh, got a, a, a love of alcohol, unfortunately. Um, does alcohol affect our mood? So if we came off it, it could help our mood? Yeah, absolutely. So alcohol can be a depressant. So um, it kind of lowers, it can lower mood and and, and um, affect us in that way. So absolutely, if you feel like um, your, your use of alcohol is increasing, 
um, looking at kind of changing that and being more moderate in your alcohol use can help with mood, absolutely. So engaging in those behaviours and physical activity, looking at what you're eating, reducing your alcohol consumption or your drug use um, are all practical strategies that could assist in kind of helping stabilise mood. And have you seen in your own practice support groups of benefit to men? Yeah, absolutely. They can be. We've got a couple of really, really good ones going on. You mentioned sort of Movember. There's more broad national approaches like Are You OK Days. Um, there's really um, programs like the Men's Shed for, for um, uh, typically for older, older men to get involved. But absolutely kind of support groups can be really beneficial because, again, it's about kind of really challenging that idea that as men we shouldn't talk about our feelings and 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 really challenging that idea that men can't support other men and really kind of breaking down that barrier and that stigma and starting to get more comfortable with they with being able to say look hey I don't feel like I'm going that well I'm not sure what's going on but I just feel like I'm struggling and kind of reaching out in that way to to others that might be able to provide that peer support for us it's really important and then if you in your practice, have you had men that have been awfully reluctant to come for therapy and they've come and then you've seen them at the other side? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I do. I have seen clients um, that have felt reluctant and been kind of really uncertain about what the process is and, and the potential of what they might get out of it and perhaps um, reluctant to kind of really engage in that process and and again as we talked about briefly before that being really collaborative in that in that space and really talking through what some of those concerns are and what some of those potential barriers are and coming up with strategies to kind of move past them can be really beneficial but I've certainly um, experienced people coming into therapy and going out reporting that they've been feeling a little bit better about things um, even though they were perhaps a little bit uncertain about that to begin with. Yeah, well, that's a good sign and hopefully it encourages people to give it a go. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then in closing, what are sort of three key messages that you think is really important to highlight for men's mental health? Uh, really, emotional awareness. Understanding that um, um, emotion is a normal part of life, um, that we all face challenges and stresses and sometimes that's going to be really difficult to kind of manage. I think that's one really key point to remember that that as men we do experience emotions we do go through those things and that's that's really normal and sometimes you you need a helping hand like yeah. you're not going to be able to do it on your own or you might but it might be an awful struggle that's right and i think that's another one of those kind of key messages that that trying to change this attitude that to seek help is in some way weak it's not it's it it, it, it can be a really positive experience and to seek help can be a really good positive first step so that's another really kind of key message um a third one what can we say communication we've come up with it yeah. a few times haven't we communication yeah. let's start talking to each other um about how we're going let's start talking about what's going on for men um reaching out for support really kind of building that ability to communicate effectively and strongly about what's going on for yeah. us. Because I think sometimes we've got this attitude, we walk, oh, how are you going? And we have that, you know, it just automatically comes off, yeah, good. And, you know, it's just like, are you really good? Yeah. It's really questioning, you know, when we ask that, you know, say it with meaning and answer it 
honestly. Exactly right. And that goes back to the kind of check-in more than once. I think, are you okay? I've kind of recognised that as well. And there's some more messaging around that about what's the next question after, are you okay? And I think that's a really important message as well. Sort of, because you're right, socially, you know, we can fall into that. How are you going? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. Everything's great. Mm-hmm. Um, check in again. If you've got a sense that something might not be great or somebody might be struggling, check in again. It can be as simple as that. Just a regular kind of check in on how are things going and that. And maybe even expressing yourself if you're not feeling that good and then creating that environment where it feels like it's safe then that they might be able to say, you know what, I'm not feeling that great either. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A big thank you to Dylan for sharing his knowledge with us today on Meditalk. And if this interview has brought up feelings for you, reach out for support from Lifeline 131114 Beyond Blue, 1300 2246 36, or speak with your GP. To learn more about Dylan, visit clearhealthpsychology.com.au and movember.com. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.